Well, what a fascinating discussion we are about to have. I agree. And we're saying this with our uh, ESP on 10. Like, we know what this discussion is going to be. You know, I I suspect that Farah is a principled woman who won't tell tales, who protects her privacy and the privacy of her constituents, but at the same time has this kind of open heart and, and big awareness of how important it is to show up as a human being in the world. Yeah. What just occurred to me is she probably is going to show up and the things that are important will be delved into and those that aren't will be brushed aside. Two outlaws on the lamb taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. And here we are with another episode of Moped Outlaws with our special guest this morning or this evening, depending on where you are and when you're listening with Farah. And did I say that correctly? <laughs> I tried. Either or Farah, Farah, Farah. Uh, <laughs> it's it's all much of a muchness, it's, you know. I from arose by any other name, yeah. Where it's currently 120 degrees and humid. Yeah. It is. I am sitting in an AC room just to stay cool. Um, and it's pretty much that. You know, you go from the house to the car to the office. You don't sort of venture outdoors unless you really have to. This, this is an interesting thing about um, Dubaians is that they are very resilient and creative people to resolve these issues. And from what I've heard from friends who visited, there's a kind of joy that's part of the Dubai culture. Is that how you experience it? For sure. Um, actually, my name means joy as well. Farah means joy, um, just to, as a little side note. But Dubai, I think there's a real can-do sort of attitude to the town. If you think about it, we've all come from different parts of the world, and predominantly there'll be sort of high achievers, you know, there are people in the company who are doing really well, who are sent out or people who want to change their life or people who want to do something different or try something different who come out. So I think that feeds into the energy of the place. Um, And then not the 120 degrees, but the sunshine for the other months when it's a little bit cooler really helps um, to build that sort of spirit of joy and happiness and sort of, um, living lifestyle. Is it also part of your experience that the sun doesn't really change its height over the course of the year because you're close to the equator? Uh, I am going to have to pause and think about that, but I actually don't think it does. I think it just, I've never seen the sun at different heights. It's sort of always at the point in the sky where it is. It's just the intensity changes. Uh, But the thing I have noticed is the moon, uh, on a full moon night, it is amazing. It's glorious. It looks really close to us. uh, And it's this huge, big circle in the sky. Um, I assure you, we didn't didn't ask you here to talk about the weather, but it is (laughs) No, but I do have another weather question. (laughs) Like, are the... The the sandstorms I've seen in Hollywood productions, are those real where just this wave of sand hits Dubai and you can't see? It does. On occasion, it will. You know, when you see your black car looking a shade of uh, pale sort of sand color, you know you've been in a sandstorm. So, yes, it does. There can be some intense sandstorms. Dang, doesn't that sandblast cars? Like, don't you walk out? And you, oh, my gosh. All right. It sure does. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got the minutia out of the way. <laughs> I want to ask, are you, are you tired of talking about your book yet? I don't think so. I think each conversation has been a little bit different with a different focus and I'm meeting different people and it's almost like I'm getting to know you through the questions you ask me as much as you're getting to know me or your listeners are getting to know about me or the book. Um, 
But other than the book, it's sort of a conversation about relationships or relating or grief or loss or those kind of aspects rather than the details of a book per se, if you like. And because it's not a work of fiction, it's not characters. You're talking about real people um, and real sort of what happens to all of us. You know, none of us um, escape life's um, challenges, I don't think. So if we dive into that, because I glanced at things, you received a call that your mother had been shot. That is right. And was she, did she die from that? Um, she did without um, giving it away. It's kind of on the front cover of the book. She did. She passed from it. She didn't pass immediately. Um, she survived. You might think people from gunshots don't, you know, survive that particular uh, injury, but she did for 25 days. She was in hospital, and then she passed from the internal bleeding, um, which the doctors weren't able to locate or stem. So um, she was with us for 25 days and then passed away. That must have been a very difficult 25 days for you. It was. Um, would not wish it on anyone. It's um, it's minute by minute, day by day, and each day was a roller coaster emotionally, physically, um, not knowing what to expect. There were no um, precedents to what had happened, and no one knew how to react or how to be. Um, and there was just wave upon wave of either a medical complication or, you know, emotional aspects across the family and the friends and everyone gathered outside. And there was a lot of press interest in the case. Um, so they were camped out at the hospital sort of front. Um, so it, it was particularly challenging and trying. What was the press interest? So... The nature of the incident in itself was a roadside crime. Um, my family is fairly well known back in our hometown, and there had been um, sort of focus on ladies being um, not feeling safe, right, or being attacked by the Indian male. And it can start with something as sort of innocuous as a roadside comment, you know, or blowing a kiss or just sort of lewd comments, which is what led to the incident in the first place. Um, they're sort of termed roadside Romeos because they are cheap or, you know, they make these very vulgar comments at ladies. And it's something that most women in India have to deal with and learn to handle um, pretty early on. So walking out on your own would not be something that a girl in India at night would want to do because she may not feel safe enough to do it. So the press had picked up on the story. My mom was a well-known uh, personality in town. She was a lawyer, and they were following the story. And my stepfather's in politics, so you know the political aspect was being played out as well. So it was reported and recorded in um, real time on the news channels. Both Greg and I have lost our mothers as well. So all of us on this call have experienced the grief of losing the woman who gave us life um, in our so situation sorry. though it wasn't compounded by the incidence of the intrusion of the public interest i eat you know the press and those sorts mm -hmm. of things and uh, i just want to acknowledge that that's a tough thing to go through grief at all and then to go through grief in a public way where everyone's voicing their opinions based on the character and the way that your folks have handled their lives, that that's just another layer of modern society that I find repugnant. I could not agree with you more. And I'm so sorry for your loss. It's, um, it's your parent, especially your mother's kind of your foundation. As you say, she gives you life. So they're so pivotal to our lives and our sense of ourselves and they bear witness to us and what we achieve or, you know, the good and the bad. And to have that, not with you leaves this sort of void. Um, you know, when my kids were growing up, if they did something amazing, I'd have called her um, to tell her about it. But that that was not um, that was not to be. So yeah, it is it is a huge loss, and that extra sort of, as you say, it's that 
voice of everyone, you know, wanting to have an opinion, wanting to muscle in, everyone claiming to be my mother's best friend. Not that she didn't have, you know, so many best friends, but uh, even today I'll meet people at a social engagement and they were going, oh, I loved your mother. She was my best friend. And I'm like, I've never met you, but I believe you (laughs) because she did have this quality about her of attracting people to her and making them feel really warm and that she was fully invested in them and they could confide anything in her. So I, I do believe them. It's just that I may never have met them. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's an interesting it's an interesting observation of humanity as well, almost at its worst. When you go through something like this, you know, you see all shades of humanity. But as you use that strong word, but yeah, there are parts of it that you just think really, you know, um, even that was low for you, you know. Um, well, let me ask, has you, again, from a very surface level of glancing through what you've presented, it seems like this experience started a very personal and spiritual journey for yourself. That is true. That is true, because it's how do you deal with grief? You know, it's not sort of... You can read books about it. You can talk to people about it. And everyone's experience of grief will be different and how they handle grief will be different. Um, For me, it's very much going inward. You know, other people may want to talk a lot to other people about it. But for me, if I'm in a bit of a crisis or I don't know how to handle the emotions that I'm feeling, I tend to sort of almost buckle down to have sorted out my thoughts, figured out what I'm feeling, have the vocabulary to articulate it before I come out. Um, And with mum passing, it was, I didn't have anyone else to turn to because my father had been absent, so I didn't have, you know, a parent figure. Um, And I'm the eldest of my siblings, so it was, I was almost, you know, leaned on and had to present um, a little bit more solid than perhaps I was feeling. Uh, My children were very young. I had a career in the finance world. So it was, there was a lot of trying to hold it all together while sorting through the emotions in the background or, you know, in private with either a counselor. Um, Yoga became a very big part of my spiritual practice still is and physical practice as well. Um, I trained to be a yoga teacher. I started a yoga club for my colleagues And then food. Um, Food's been a huge part of our family, always is. We're Parsis by faith and, you know, we start our day with what what are we eating today kind of thing. Um, And I had always loved baking, but I've never really sort of embraced that to the extent I did when I lost mom and I'd be in the kitchen just creating. And And someone said to me, there are nerve endings in your hands. So if you do anything with your hands, crafting or gardening or anything, like even baking, then it's almost like you're working through the emotions in a way. Um, And I hadn't thought of it like that, but it definitely felt like that. I'd go into the kitchen and, you know, go through books. What do I want to make? What do I feel like eating? What are the ingredients we have? What can I create? And it was very um, therapeutic for me because it's that time where you switch off the thoughts that are going through your mind um, in relation to the grief of mom or passing or any of that. And you're focusing on something else. So for a minute, your mind is distracted and you just come out of that sort of um, space that you've inhabited for a while. So it had me. I had the benefit of playing a musical instrument when I went through the death of my mom. And that's very much about my hands. And I'm wondering, Greg, was there something for you when when your mom died that you were able to use your hands to help you process with? Well, I thought I think both my mom and my father's passing was a positive experience for me. Um, It was a completion and not an abrupt ending. So. I've had melancholy since their passing, but actual grieving in the moment didn't exist for me, for either one of them. Thank you. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting how the same sort of event evokes different emotions, I think, depending on your relationship with your parent, but also the way they pass and transition, because intellectually we may all acknowledge that we're all going to pass on one day, but it's the way it happens and based on the relationships around and whether, as you say, you've had that closure or completion or not, 
um, it can be a very different experience for each of us. Yeah, I'm wondering because I imagine myself in your shoes and I would feel an immense amount of anger at the individual who took my mother from me. And I'm wondering if part of your spiritual journey was coming to terms with that perhaps, or more importantly, forgiveness, how that played in your discovery of self. I think the rage was more at just the way the circumstances played out, the wrong place, right, you know, wrong time, you know, why was she there? Why did it have to happen to her? Why were those gentlemen you know, there, why did she get out of the car and confront them? Why didn't she just let it be when they didn't apologize? You know, there were so many whys and just this sort of immense being mad at God or the universe or whoever for um, the situation we all found ourselves in. And then the guy who pulled the trigger um, was caught by the police and was, he has been jailed for life. And you know, no amount of raging at him is going to bring my mother back. And part of the catharsis with, say, the therapist or whatever was working through the emotions of the loss and, as you say, the forgiveness and being able to release um, whatever was inside of me. So I'm not holding it in. You know, it was everything had to be written out and journaled. And, you know, if I didn't write strong enough emotions, she'd come back at me and say, you haven't gone deep enough and, you know, write some more. And how did you really feel? And, you know, sort of do the whole role modeling as well. You know, put a chair, imagine he's sitting there and say to him what you would say to him if you met him in real life. So there was a lot of work around it to process it, to let it go. Um, and then what's left is they say you tell the story different when you've healed. So I think the timing of the book and me being able to talk to you all is, you know, the time and place where it's meant to happen as well. So I have I'll... one more question, if it's okay. Because banking seems very stoic, very unemotional. Um, and yet you seem to have opened up to baking in this whole realm of that you're taking tango dancing. And I saw you shared, you know, like how that's very edgy for you, but also very passionate. Your world, you've opened up to a passionate world. Do you feel like the experience of your mom's passing did kind of crack a wall or have you always been a passionate person? I think it's a little bit about still waters run deep. So I don't know if you believe in astrology. So I'm a Capricorn and my mother was a Scorpio and we would, I would tease her and go, Oh my God, Scorpio. But what she would point out to me is your moon is in Scorpio, which means the sting in the tail is hidden. People don't know it's coming till, till, <laughs> till they experience it. So I think with me, you know, the facade is the Capricorn, but the depth is the Scorpio. Um, and I've always had these multiple interests. I grew up in India, so astrology, um, anything metaphysical, the paranormal, spiritual is all sort of around you all the time. You can't help but absorb it by osmosis. My mother was very spiritual, so, you know, that is her gift to me for sure. Dance, I've loved, but I always was a little bit inhibited, so it's only in my later life that I've, you know, gone to salsa classes and now I'm doing tango, as you saw. Um, and banking, you know, I bring my whole self. Yes, it is. A, means you'd be surprised at the corporate politics and the emotions that can erupt at work as well. <laughs> but it's, you know, there's different parts to me. I can be very process and workflow and PowerPoint and Excel driven in the day and then, in the evening, I'm in the kitchen and I'm baking and I take it to work and my colleagues get the benefit of whatever I've created. And in my office, I'll always have a vase with flowers in it because I love flowers and they give me joy. Um, I will have a humidifier, you know, in the corner with lavender going off in the office. And all of this time, I'm still doing the PowerPoint and Excels, but that's all of me. So I think I'm sort of the sum of all of it rather than any one part of it. Um, and I like to be able to do the different things and uh, be able to experience different things. You mentioned that your mom was a very spiritual person and you mentioned astrology. 
Um, I'm a Pisces with a Scorpio in my my uh, my portfolio as well. I didn't but know that. My, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think it's a Leo moon and a Scorpio rising. But um, oh, okay. My point isn't to put the attention on me. My point is to ask you the question about what your mom's beliefs were about the afterlife. And do you hold those beliefs? And what do you think happened? So my mother believed, she definitely believed in life, rebirth, you know, um, and all of that and karma. And um, I remember when she was in the hospital and you know, strapped up to all the machines and we were signing and she had been put on a ventilator because her lungs had been impacted. She said to me, um, you know, I will get moksha. Moksha is sort of the ultimate release from the cycle of death and rebirth. Um because of, I think, what had happened, but maybe she felt this, um, the way she was passing was meant to sort of repay all her past life debts and she would get moksh through this life. Um, <laughs> and I remember she used to say this to me earlier when she was, you know, um, hale and hearty and mum used to smoke a lot and she would play cards and I would like, mum, I'm, you know, I'm doubting the scene of moksh because, you know, what are you going to be doing up there smoking and playing cards with your buddies? You know, how's that going to work out? So we used to joke about it. Um, and when we buried her, we buried her with her cigarettes and her cards so she could do whatever she wanted up there with her pals. But mum believed that they're soul families and you almost sort of contract with each other before you come into the life as to the roles you're going to play with each other and help the soul sort of expand through the growth and the lessons that you're going to experience in this life. And life is not random, right? It's we come in, we learn, we grow, we iterate, and hopefully we become stronger versions of ourselves or better versions of ourselves, um, for the most part. And if I ever said to her, you know, I was struggling with something or I was complaining about something or someone, and she would say, just remember you chose this life or you chose this. And I would always sort of, you know, retort back to, I'm sure I didn't chose, you know, whatever was happening. Um, and I'm sure I didn't chose to be in this situation. But what she was trying to say to me was, these are lessons that you've somewhere you know, in the ether chosen to come into this life, to learn, to master, to become the version of you that, you know, you end up becoming. Um, and you can wrap your head around the most, but then you think, would you ever choose to lose a parent like that? And I don't think that would have been a choice, but maybe that was her choice and that was her destiny for her to attain the moksha that she believed she would attain in this life. So I don't know for sure um, what the right answer or wrong answer is, but you work on faith and you work on belief. And I believe, um, yes, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw that. Hello, Houston. Yes. So this kept coming up for me. I, a while ago, decades ago, read a book by a woman who lost her son in a scuba accident. Very much, well, you know, deep grief and an opening to spirituality that she didn't have before. And in the book, she says like about 10 years after the incident, as she's wondering why did this happen? And her son came, well, look what you've become. I needed to do that for this to open for you. Do you have a similar resonance in a sense of, the passing of your mom and the way she passed <coughs> was necessary for you to be who you are today. I, I guess based on what we've said and what we believe that the challenges are there to help you find a part of yourself or find a strength or find something, some quality within yourself that is waiting to be birthed or waiting to come out, that would make absolute sense. But I think it's every challenge has that lesson and that kernel in it for you to discover how do you navigate it, how do you overcome it, and what is the strength you need to find. So I think with mom passing, you know, it's about being able to stand you know, be comfortable in my skin, stand on my own two feet. And self-sufficiency is a recurring 
theme in my life and self-reliance and being able to manage my own emotions. You know, like if there's a tough anything, I don't have anyone to turn to. There's no safety net. So it is about being able to master my own emotions, find the strength within myself and, um, you know, just find ways to navigate my life and be able to fulfill the needs for myself and my sort of ecosystem. There's a deeper level that is born in what you just said. And I want to ask permission before I go there. Are you open to talking about your relationships, your personal relationships? Yeah, sure. <laughs> From the difficulty you had with your stepfather and the early loss of your father, has this impacted your ability and having male partners in your life? And what is your life like right now around who you're in relationship with? And have you chosen to be single? Have you chosen to be sort of not in relationship? What's happening for you and, and what does it come from? So I think the early blueprint of the male role model wasn't great, right? So my father wasn't present, you know, wasn't responsible. My stepfather also made similar choices vis-a-vis us. Um, And interestingly, the gentleman I married, my ex-husband, whilst a very different personality, I thought, to everything I'd experienced, because growing up in India, the northern Indian male was not the the kind of man that I was. Uh, we lost her. And if we cut for a commercial. <laughs> we will hold space for the return of Farah. Farah. Joy, um, by any other name. Yeah, that's pretty rad. May she return and be able to tell so, us. Oh, we, we lost we, you for a moment. Yeah, so. okay, sorry. So I was just saying my there were parallels between my mother's life and my mother's relationship with my father and my ex-husband. So I got divorced 10 years ago to answer the more specific question mark you asked. Um, and I'm single at the moment. Uh, not a conscious choice per se, but I think what I have learned is I think my self-esteem was quite low when I was younger, um, partially through my growing up, not knowing where I belonged, always being a little bit different in India, going to London, not quite being English enough, you know, in India, not being Indian enough. And it was always a question of who am I? And today I think my self-esteem is healthy. My boundaries are fairly healthy. I kind of know what works for me and doesn't, and I'm not willing to compromise or settle. So I think as a result of that, I am single at the moment. Um, and my my ex-husband and my father um, shared a lot of similarities. You might say some very superficial, like they were both into technology, both liked photography, Um, Both then turned out to be not financially responsible and both turned out to be not very present for their children. And it was really interesting. The only difference was my mother's circumstances when she left my dad vis-a-vis my circumstances. And I was financially secure because I had my career in the banking industry. So I think other than that, there was a lot of repeating patterns. And they say that if what you don't forgive is what comes back into your life, right? It's repeated. So there was a lot of working through that as well um, and conversations I have with my daughter about how we need to, and my son, about how we need to not allow this to come through to the next generation as well. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's it's very true. There's what a lot I- of um, context in our country that would suggest places like India and Saudi Arabia and Dubai have a deep, deep seated dominance of males over women. I'm wondering if that is something you experience still. And if you've experienced that in the context of your work in banking and how you deal with that sort of male patriarchal hangover that's remains in our culture. So I think that's kind of a loaded question, (laughs) but I will be as honest as I can. So growing up in India, my grandmother was 
not, you know, she was a very modern, unconventional, you know, thought um, person. She had set up schools. She had worked in the independence movement. My mother was a lawyer, also very unconventional life, you know, chose to separate when that wasn't something that people did in India, smoked, wore trousers, and, you know, was the talk of the town. So I was raised in this family where, it was okay for a girl to speak her mind and it was okay to have an opinion other than when I became a teenager and they wanted me to, you know, not voice my opinions as much. Um, and my stepfather was a Northern Indian gentleman and, you know, children are typically meant to be seen and not heard, and especially the girls, not meant to have opinions. So that did not go down very well, um, especially as I started finding my voice. And as a teenager, I was quite uh, vociferous in my opinions and did not spare anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that wasn't great. And then you sort of fast forward, London was fine, and I mellowed a little bit, I think. Some of the edges were still a bit rough. And then you become a parent and, you know, um, and just through corporate life, and you learn to modulate how you deliver messages. And I worked in international organizations, so the glass ceiling wasn't as perceptive. But it's definitely there, you know. It's not that it's not there. It is there, you know. People at the same rank, the different benchmarks and different bands for the salaries and the gentleman will be at the higher band, the lady's not. Um, there are certain, you know, the C-suite roles, pretty much you would see the men in those roles rather than the women in those roles, right? Um, I think... UAE is a very interesting place to be. It's the first generation almost of ladies who are coming into the workforce, so into corporate careers, right, into the private sector, so to speak. Um, and they are brilliant and they're smart and they're, you know, keen and eager to work. But that patriarchy remains, and my rebellion to the patriarchy <laughs> remains. So it's like the minute I find a gentleman, there's a term mansplaining. Oh, my God. I am so on it. <laughs> it's, you know, if you need to see emotions in the corporate world, you get a man mansplaining to me. And, uh, yeah. So are I you saying <laughs> that when a man is saying to you that, about something and then you like are telling so when him. a man explains but does it in a condescending manner oh so yeah. you mean like a man who he knows what's going of course on he does. and um yeah okay well that makes yeah. sense yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. So yes, the patriarchy is there. So little things like I wasn't allowed to sponsor my children in the Bayoni here on a visa. And as a woman, you know, it was a little bit of a hurdle to sponsor my children. And then you need a no objection or you need X, Y, or Z. And those sort of things really rattle me because I'm like, why? Why does a man have to say it's okay for me to do something? You know, like I'm paying my bills. Um, I don't need the man to say it's okay. So, yeah. It does uh, rattle the cage. Are your children um, with you in Dubai? They are actually studying. The, they're at university in the UK. So they're okay. both in the UK at the moment, but they grew up here. So, uh, yeah, products of Dubai. And what did you do for your son, do you think, like consciously to help him be a individual and male, but also not fall into these patriarchal... Holes. I think poor guy didn't have a choice with a strong mother and a strong sister. <laughs> but but to his credit, he can stand up to both of us. So the strength is there. Um, but it's and it's interesting. The kids will call me out on it if I do any of the gender stereotyping. If I'm in the kitchen and I say to my daughter, "Will you come and help me?" She's like, "Why are you telling me? Tell the boy." I'm like, "Okay, fair, you know, very fair, you know." Then I'm like, "You wash up and he'll chop," sort of thing. Um, and any of that sort of gender, if I do it in terms of defining them, she'll call me out. He'll call me out. So I'm very conscious of it, and hopefully. He's a well-adjusted individual. He's very clear in who he is, which is very, you know, different to who I am or my daughter is. Um, 
but respectful at the same time and doesn't dare do the mansplaining with us. He does try, but, you know, gets wrapped up. <laughs> it seems as though we've all chosen in this life to confront this issue because here we are in this century, and if you're at all um, illuminated to what's happening, then these issues are coming to the fore. And so as, as your mom implied, we've all chosen to grapple with this issue. And so here we are. Do you envision a world where women had more jobs in the C-suites? And it's just like with me, I have this aspirational, hopeful sense that if we had that, the world would have less conflict and more unity. And on one level, that's a sexist thing to say, right? Because I'm pigeonholing how women would lead. But I'm curious, do you hold that aspiration and, and that analysis as well for yourself? I, I would love to see more women leading because I think the capability is then it's not a quota system and it's not like you tick the box that you're a female and you get the job. They have the ability. They're almost not given the opportunities. And it's about give the opportunity regardless of whether it's male or female to the best candidate who's doing the job, right? Um, and I think without meaning to be sexist about it, men and women, you know, biologically were different and would have different ways of leading, not to say it's all of one or the other, but the way I lead my team is different to how I see my other colleagues who are gentlemen who lead their teams, right? It is more about the collaboration. It is about, you know, knowing about their families. It is about baking the cake and taking it to them. It is about knowing them as individuals and nurturing them and helping them and even where things are happening in their personal life, helping them and supporting them and mentoring them through that. So I think the styles may be different. I think women aren't as, well, not all women, are not as confrontational perhaps or aggressive, right, in the workspace. Uh, not to say that they can't stand their ground, not to say that they can't challenge a situation, but it's just done in a different way. So it's about a style rather than an outcome. You can still have your business results. You can still grow whatever it is, succeed in whatever industry you are in. But I just think the way it's done could be done differently. And I'd love to see more women in leadership roles. What drew you into banking as a young oh, girl? Oh, wow. I wanted to be a doctor. But then, and I did biology, um, and I chose biology. So to be a doctor, you had to do physics, chemistry, biology. And if you wanted to be an engineer or an architect, you did physics, chemistry, maths. So I chose biology. And then I got, I grew up in India, and then I got to the UK, aged 18, and there were no concessions or grants for me as a student because my parents weren't in the country paying taxes. I was considered an overseas student, and my mom couldn't afford the financial um, aspects for me to study medicine. So I started working. You know, I worked in a shoe shop, I worked in a hospital, and then through a friend's friend got an interview in a bank and started out as a trainee. And I'm still here 30 plus years later, having built my career without a degree in banking. So um, I don't think I was so much drawn as <laughs> it, it was a series of elimination. The, the choices sort of led me down or the lack of opportunities um, for me to become a doctor. But I imagine banking. to be successful in it, you've found a passion in it. Is that true? Someone asked me that, and I think my answer would be, I'm good at what I do. Um, and I like being good at what I do. Um, and I think if it's, you know, mastery through repetition, because I've been doing it for this long, and yes, I enjoy making a difference. So I enjoy, and I enjoy working with people, and I enjoy leading a team, and I enjoy seeing them grow and flourish. So there are many aspects to the job I love. Um, and like any job, there are aspects that I think, okay, why are we doing this? So what do you and your team do that's creating impact in the world? So we're in a large financial organization, and I lead a team that's called business governance. So we sort of make sure the business adheres to compliance-related policies, procedures, um, anything to do with audit or fraud or aspects of the business that just need to be kept secure and monitored and um, 
ensure everyone's doing the right thing by the business and the organization and the stakeholders. Um, was your bank involved in the real estate things that were going on back in 2006, 7, 8, where here in the United States the economy crashed? True. No, they weren't involved in that because it's a local organization, so they didn't have a footprint there at the time. So when you say local, they aren't invested internationally? They are now, um, but it's a local bank as opposed to, say, a Citibank or a Barclays where I worked before. Those are large global organizations. This is a UAE-based organization. Okay. So... Do you have any thoughts about um, the UK leaving the euro? Not very happy about it, the Brexit, yeah, but uh, I think we'll leave politics out of this debate because I don't think anyone wins on that one. I have no idea really what I just (laughs) asked, so that's my level of knowledge. (laughs) It's just made it a lot trickier for everyone. I'm I'm not so sure. Um, I'm not so sure it achieved the result that perhaps the government at the time thought it would. I don't think it's brought the benefits that it uh, was meant to. You've written a very emotional book that reveals parts of your experience and your views of your mother and the context of your lives. I'm curious if you feel like you have another book in you. I think I do. I think I do. Is it a um, Well, interesting you should say that because I've been asked that before, and I definitely think there could be, you know, recipes and stories interweaved with the recipes perhaps. Um, but there's a whole chunk in the book where I don't, delve into my time in London, which is story upon story as an 18-year-old trying to make it um, and, you know, failing very miserably at a you know, number of points before I find my footing um, to succeed. So there's, there's quite a few stories that I think could come into another book. I want to ask a question that might feel like quite a left turn, so hold on to your hat. Okay. In the world of salsa dancing left arm it's it's often um powerful women whom i've danced with they have to fight not to be the lead do you experience yourself um feeling challenged by being the as what they refer to as the follower in salsa dancing I almost put myself willingly in that position because I spent so much of my day leading. I almost relish not having to think about it or leading and just following. But I do find sometimes my arms, you know, the, the partner will say, you need to loosen up. Or now that I'm doing tango, he'll go, Farah, you're not leading here. You know, you'll have to remind me. Sometimes the arms go straight out and he's like, you're pushing me away. So it's it's a very true and very um, sort of insightful of you to pick up on that. It's, I actually want to be, because it's a release for me. I'm so in my, you know, um, leading energy through the day that it's actually quite nice to not be in the leading energy and to come into the more receptive so-called feminine energy for a little bit and to allow somebody else to lead me. And all I have to do is follow. Um, But yeah, it's, it's very true. Do you think that the current context of um, men and women's relationships have made men a little bit leadership shy in some arenas as they try to navigate the the new standards and the new paradigm? Do you think that's contributing to some of that that context? I think it's a tricky world for men to navigate. They don't quite know, you know, we've empowered the women. And, you know, all about girl power. But I don't know if the equivalent sort of modeling for the men has occurred. And you guys just have to figure out. And when you come with a woman, it's like, okay, what are your boundaries? Where can you go? How much How much can you push? Or how masculine or aggressive can you be before you get, you know, the blowback? Um, so I think it's a really tricky two steps forward, one step back kind of dance that goes on, right, to test and be and know what's okay and appropriate and acceptable. Um, I don't even know what's acceptable. There's no, there's no standard anymore. Everyone 
has a different standard, I feel, right? Um, and across cultures and geographies as well, very, very different and very confusing, if you ask me. It seems like it brings me more to the moment and kind of the Zen of now, because if I try to think of a global generalization, then yeah, I'm going to get lost very quickly. So staying in whatever this moment is, this environment of now, then acting. And what I love, like I have this conversation with my son a lot, allowing for our humanness for mistakes, to interact with people who give allowance for me to fall on my face, to say something stupid and just call me on it without, you know, berating me. Just say, hey, that was a mistake. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's true. As you're getting to know people, there's always going to be that, right? Because you, I think if you come from a shared background or a shared culture upbringing, then your reference points are the same, you know, even if your socioeconomic um, sort of standards have been the same, your reference points are similar, your values might be similar, what's right or wrong might be similar. But when you come from very different cultural backgrounds, and you're in Dubai, as an example, which is a melting point, you there isn't a common sort of base or a common level of understanding or a common level of what is appropriate and not appropriate, that in itself changes depending on who you're interacting with and where they come from and what their backstory is and what their cultural reference point is. So it is a little bit of a juggling act and you've got to adapt to the individual that you're dealing with. And, you know, having grown up in India or having had that background grown up you know, then and lived in London and now in Dubai for 22 years. Hopefully it's equipped me to, and it's that emotional intelligence, right? You read the room and you figure out, okay, this is how I need to present here or this is appropriate for this occasion or even how do you dress, you know? It's little things like that that um, you do have to navigate. Do you interact with the Saudi royalty as part of your banking <laughs> No, I don't. I'm not customer-facing, but no, I don't. I'm particularly myself avoiding um, deep questions about your work because I want to respect yeah. the risk that you might be taking and answering them. Um, I'm, I want to turn back, though, to slightly towards that, which is I have a theory that there's a great, right. a great deal of uh, growth potential in the C-suite for men who adapt and cultivate emotional intelligence and emotional literacy. And I'm wondering if you agree. I think so. I've, I've had some great male bosses. So, you know, I want to give a shout out to them. They've been mentors. They've been guides. They've been coaches. They've been, you know, the people that call out my name in a room where it counts. So definitely, there have been some really great male leaders that I've experienced. And I think what they all had in common was that very high EQ. Um, they were very comfortable interacting with women. They didn't feel threatened. They were very happy to promote um, women's talents or put them even in roles that they may not be fully equipped for. Because what you hear is a gentleman will apply for a job you know, that he can only do 80% for with a 20% growth built in, whereas a lady feels she needs to be able to do 100% before she may apply for the job, right? This is what the statistics tell you. But, um, no, I've, I've experienced some really great male leaders, and I think high IQ was definitely the common sort of trait between all of them where they were able to navigate, they were able to understand women's emotional landscape and cater to that um, within reason, and also just um, be very human about it and very humble. Um, you know, definitely you, leadership qualities. Do you think EQ and the attendant empathy that comes with it is the key to us healing the world? I don't know about healing the world, but it'll go a huge, it'll go a really long way in making things better, right? There's so, everyone's so at opposite ends at the moment and sort of 
butting heads over everything without trying to understand the other person's point of view or finding a compromise situation, right? So if empathy and EQ allows you to look at the world from a different point of view and put yourself in someone else's shoes and just understand that there's no one answer to any particular thing, right? And there's no one way and allow for differences. You can disagree without being disagreeable, right? Someone said that and I kind of like that. Um, I think empathy would go a really long way in easing some of the tensions we have brewing. I don't know how far... Um, how much further it would take us, but um, it's definitely something we would want to encourage and promote. Do you think there's an element of you grew up in India and you're in Saudi Arabia and these seem like very ancient cultures that are still very prominently lived. And here in the United States, I believe our Western culture is very young in comparison to the world. Do you think there's, like I was just thinking of our ex-president who had his mugshot taken yesterday, and that was such a big deal. Um, Do you think there's an element of volatility to our United States culture that is a very youthful kind of teenage energy that... India and the Middle East like have grown up from I I just think the backgrounds or the stories like India is an ancient civilization right and it's rooted in some very deep philosophical theological you know it's just the whole spirit of the country is very different right same for where i am today in the middle east in united arab emirates it's a very different culture it comes from a very different place and time and mindset i think america just i don't know what did you all are smoking or eating but you all yeah. you all have, you all have a very different but you guys are also it's not you know, we club it all as United States, right? And the mugshot. Yeah, it is very factional. It's becoming yeah. clear. It's more and more fact- factional. And I think let's just be really explicit. Both Greg and I have made the mistake of referring to the Dubai location as if it's a Saudi location and it is in the United Arab Emirates. It's not in Saudi Arabia. So we'll just be explicit about um, our Western failure at geography well, and move on. Over the Middle East. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do that was a good that was a good recovery. That was good recovery. <laughs> Can I ride the coattails of that recovery? Um, I just see a similarity. And like you spoke of how as a young teenager, you were um, very brash in your interaction. Response. With people. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And it seems like the United States, again, speaking generally, like that's where we are. We're in this sort of teenage, rah! Yeah, but you've been there for a while. Isn't it time to grow up? (laughs) Well, I would say yes, but if you look at the span of centuries involved with the Indian culture, as you said, or the Middle Eastern culture, Mm -hmm. we're very young in comparison to those cultures. As a country, yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. So you've got time. You've got time to grow into your creatures. Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. Oh, my gosh. So there is something with the cooking that just keeps percolating, as one might say. Uh, um, Were you passionate about baking before your mother was shot? Is that a... Yeah, no, I was. um, I was baking sort of came more when I was living in London and I just had my daughter. And it was sort of cold and great. It was in November and um, there wasn't very much to do other than, you know, stay warm indoors. And when she slept, I'd be in the kitchen cooking meals or just trying different things. And I, in the Sunday newspaper, which, you know, used to be the ritual, you go get the paper and read the paper cover to cover, 
um, they had a weekly magazine, and in the magazine they had a couple of recipes for biscuits, which I tried. And previously I wouldn't bake a whole cake because I would have a piece and then I didn't want to waste. And, you know, grandmother's message ringing true, do not leave anything on your dinner plate and you can't leave the dining table, so I didn't want to waste. So this recipe for biscuits was I could make the dough, make as many biscuits as I needed, and then keep the dough and make more biscuits. So that appealed to my sense of organization. Um and they were great, and I got really good feedback. So that led to different recipes and trying and baking and cooking. Um, but the baking really took off then. But when I, when mum passed, what the baking was was a tool for me to disengage or just quieten the mind. So it was a creative outlet for me that took on a whole different life when mum passed. Um, to the point where I wanted to open a cafe and, you know, spreadsheets and locations and ingredients and menus and all of that happened. Um, and then I didn't. Um, but, you know, that's a dream for another day. So when you say baking, like for me, I differentiate baking and cooking. Baking's very Correct. specific to the oven. I agree. I agree. I do not go into the kitchen and think, what should I cook for myself to eat? I go in and think, what can I bake? And not even for myself. It's more just the, the process of creating. So I'll bake it. Whether I eat it or not is secondary. Some days I might crave something, but the... The primary focus is not to feed me, it's just to create. And then it gets distributed or shared or passed on. So it's the creation that's the driver rather than the consumption, which whereas in cooking, it's the, you know, you're filling a need almost, right? So have you made sourdough bread? I have not made sourdough bread. I'm tending to not eat as much bread, but uh, any cake or tart or biscuit or scone or Anything like that, I make. All right. All right. Yeah, good scone. So do you like a little bit of the tartness with a good scone? I do. I make my own um, strawberry sort of filling that goes with it. And I've seen a recipe. Um, so it's not so much a scone as an American shortcake. So it's got a bit, it's got a slightly different texture, slightly more crumbly um, which is yum. So I've got friends coming over for tea on Sunday, and that's going to be made. So, yeah. All right. Well, on the cooking uh, tip here, do you have a convection oven? Do you do you have that air circulation oven? I that, do. I, that's a really gas. Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's really important. important for baking to be able to circulate the air at that level and create the yeah. kind of uniform atmospheric pressure. Correct. What about what are those ovens that they cook non on where it's on the like side? a tandoor? It's called a tandoor. It's like a, um, an oven that goes into the ground and they put the breads right. on the side. So it's have called a tandoor. Baking with that? No, I haven't. I don't have that set up. I've just got a box standard oven in the kitchen. That well, I how long have you been in uh, Dubai? I have been here, yeah, 20, 22 years. I came when my daughter was six months old, and um, she is 22 and a half. Was it work that brought you to Dubai, or was it a personal choice? It was a personal choice, sort of combined, where I worked, had an office in Dubai, and my family was in India, and it was just warmer, sunnier, and closer to my family. So it was sort of a conscious choice, to move here, there were opportunities arising. My ex-husband was in technology, um, so he set up a company. I went back to the organization where I worked, um, and it was a conscious choice to move here. And is your daughter older than your son? She is. Okay. So then you had your son in Dubai. Correct. He was born here. Yeah. yeah. Much of what I've heard about Dubai is that there's a kind of innovation and inspired way of looking at creativity in the world. Like the, there's this idea that there's going to be this blooming of human endeavor there. And it feels in many ways, it feels like this idea that we in the West, in the United States talk about in terms of freedom. Now there's a lot more rules still in Dubai around you know, what's acceptable in public, et cetera, et cetera. But do you think that that spirit of innovation is accurate? Am I just, is that just PR or am I, is there actually something uh, lit up and ignited and, and driving Dubai forward in a true innovative process? 
If you think about Dubai, you know, you may not have heard of it 20 years ago, right? It wasn't on the map. And if you think of today, everyone knows about Dubai, right? And Dubai is a travel destination of choice for people around the world. And if you think of all the facilities that they have arranged in this world of globalization, right? My daughter did a thesis on globalization, so I'm well versed in the term. Um, but if you think of the speed and the sort of efficiency and the um, not just the accuracy, but the level of accomplishment that the country and the city has produced, I think it's fair to say you know, the country is supporting innovation. It is driving innovation. It is asking for innovation because there's no other way they would have accomplished everything that they've done in such a short space of time to become one of the leading pioneer cities in so many different avenues and aspects um, of the world. So I definitely think it's part and parcel uh, of the DNA of the country. And it's sort of like become a global New York in its melting pot, right? There's yeah. multicultural, multi-ethnicities, multi-spiritual, right? Are there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it is. It definitely is a melting pot. Is there an entertainment industry that's prominent there? So not a film creation industry, but... Um, we get all the films and there's music and concerts and all of that, but not a film creation industry as yet. Okay. Not a Hollywood equivalent, if that's what right. you're... Right, or like Bollywood is... Or a Bollywood equivalent. Right. We have a question that we ask every guest, and since we're on the entertainment <laughs> tip, we're going to ask this question, but I've got to say, like, right now, it seems like the most ridiculous question to ask uh, that I've ever asked. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> one. But here we go. go so here we go, Farah. Yeah. Eminem or Foo Fighters? Eminem. Thank you. That was why. Um, I like his music. I like his lyrics. Um, I know more of them than the Foo Fighters, also possibly. Um, and my son's a musician and will do me playlists. And Eminem features on it more than the Foo Fighters. So yes. Wow. Why? Sorry. Who do? Who's on your list, Mark? Well. That's why it's such a tough decision because I like them both right now as a, I lean towards Foo Fighters because I play guitar. Right. Right. Okay. And I've sort of become wrapped up in the moment, emotional momentum of ha them having lost their drummer. Right? right. That there's a kind of okay. gravitational pull that goes with that. And, and right. beneath this question, there's this aspiration, which is emerging, which is that we would love to see them collaborate. Ah, okay. Yeah. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. What what's interesting to me is I think M has um had rev had a reverse challenge like just a couple weeks ago um his authenticity as a rapper was outwardly challenged because he's white and you know, the but that's been since day one of him right, being a rapper. Hasn't I mean. that been the narrative constantly through his career? Right. And he's even addressed it, I think, quite yeah. well in yeah. many of his songs. Um, but it does occur to me how that's one of his challenges he keeps coming up against. Like you talk about, we've talked about you as a woman, the challenges mm. you've experienced. We as dumb white men, what we experience and... <laughs> And, uh, the dumb was added by you just just to put on record that, that was not, just shows not, how dumb I am. <laughs> <laughs> just proving the point. Yeah, yeah think, I think. No, sorry, go ahead, go please. No, no I was going to say, look, the the challenge of do you fit the mold is universal, right? Is that same recurring theme? Do you fit? And this is how we define you know, anything, be it uh, a C-suite individual or a rapper or whatever, you need to tick these boxes. And if color is one of them, um, that's the that's the challenge he'll... Means I think his music speaks for itself yeah. and he doesn't really need to... Um, for me, it means after so many years, do you still need to address this? Uh, I find it really bizarre. I do think that... Uh 
as spiritual individuals, to me, spiritual is infinite. It's without boundaries. It's on and on and on. And yet our dilemma is that we're in these very finite physical existences here on this planet. Mm -hmm. So to, to have this desire to grow spiritually and continually butt up against the finite is our human challenge, I think. True. True, but um, you guys have already addressed, right, that you don't have to be one of anything in this finite. Like, if this is your home, and this is the home for your soul, but your soul is infinite and can do multiple things, as long as your body's coming along for the ride, you don't need to be restricted. Like, society will always place restrictions on you, regardless of who you are or where you come from or whether you conform or not conform. And if you conform too much, you almost lose your creativity because to be creative, you have to be a little bit outside of the box. You can't, you know, color inside the lines all the time and be creative. You have to try something different and that's always going to rub people up the wrong way a little bit to begin with. And there'll be some people who like you and some don't. And you can't be everything to everybody, I feel. And, you know, my mother used to say to me when I was growing up and she didn't conform and I would be like, please, you know, for the parent-teacher meeting, could you dress a little, you know, you could you just wear something, you know, a little less uh, obvious. And um, she would go, people are always going to talk and you cannot stop people talking any more than you can stop dogs barking. And that stays with me. So when I feel, oh my God, what are people going to say in my own life? I'm just like, it's fine. You know, as long as I'm true to myself, it's fine. And people are always going to talk. Just, you cannot control that. If you think back on this day that you live today, is there a miracle that you experienced? Today, a miracle? Great cup of coffee, a yoga class, uh, the AC that keeps me cool while it's hot outside. There's so many little miracles. My son's home for a couple of weeks uh, before he goes back to uni to spend time with him. Little miracles um, all around. Recording stopped.